You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Jacqueline Bullock. I am the Director of Education and Visitor Services at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum. I want to welcome everyone to this incredible event and thank you all for taking the time this afternoon uh, to join us. Uh, I'd also like to thank our co-sponsors, the Enoch Pratt Library, as well as the Baltimore Office of Promotion in the Arts. Uh, as part of our MLK celebration, we are so excited to welcome Professor Eddie Gloud to talk about his seminal new work on the reflections of James Baldwin through the lens of our modern America. Uh, and without further ado, I'd like to introduce Heidi Daniel. Oop, Heidi, you're muted. Got it. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you, Jacqueline. Hello, everyone. Um, I want to thank our friends at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum for partnering with us on today's event, as well as the Baltimore Office of Promotion of the Arts. We're thrilled to be able to have this partnership today. I'm Heidi Daniel, President and CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. The Mother King Jr. Lecture is a tradition at the Pratt Library. Obviously, that tradition looks a little different this year, and we're gathering virtually to celebrate. We're excited to be reaching a new audience. So if this is your first time joining the library for a virtual event, welcome. We're glad to have you here. This gives us an opportunity to reach the residents of Baltimore City as well as across the country. If you have any questions today, please type them in the chat box on Zoom or in the comments on Facebook and we're gonna try to get to them. Now, it's my honor to introduce today's speaker, Eddie Gloud is a professor and chair of African-American studies at Princeton University. He is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor. And Gloud is an accomplished author with books surrounding the themes of race, religion, and philosophy. His latest book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lesson for Our Own, was named one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post and Time Magazine. He's been an important voice in the last several days. It's my honor to introduce to you, Professor Eddie Gloud. Thank you so much, Sister Heidi Daniel, for that wonderful introduction. And I wanna thank uh, Sister Jacqueline Bollock and, and Sister Tracy for uh, uh, all the work that you're doing, Sister Tracy, behind the scenes. And, 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 and Sister Jacqueline, thank you so much uh, for the Reginald Lewis Museum for co-sponsoring all the other co-sponsors as well. Um, I also wanna thank the interpreter, I know she's doing some wonderful work here. I appreciate you. Uh, uh, and it's, it's really a delight to join you here at the Enoch Pratt Library on this special occasion. So let's just jump into this and I'm looking forward to the conversation. I wanna begin my talk with two quotations, uh, one from James Baldwin and the other from Herman Melville. Uh, it is terrible to watch people cling to their captivity and insist on their own destruction. I think black people have always felt this about America and Americans and have always seen spinning above their thoughtless head, the shape of the wrath to come. That's Baldwin in No Name in the Street, Melville. But not yet have we solved the incantation of this whiteness and learned why it appeals with such power to the soul. Melville from Moby Dick. Just a few days ago, it seems like yesterday actually, a mob of mostly white men and women sacked the US Capitol. They roamed the halls of the People's House and declared that they were here to stop the steal, to act as patriots on behalf of a country in peril. Americans watched as the Capitol Police were overrun and as some, and it's becoming clear by the day, I think about 15 now are under investigation. Some seemingly agreed with what was by any measure uh, an insurrection. I couldn't help but think at the time of, of the police response to the protest after the murder of George Floyd, or even the protest after the protest for the murder of Freddie Gray. Of course, there was violence after George Floyd's public murder. 
Minneapolis exploded just as Baltimore exploded after the death of Freddie Gray. But I recall the peaceful marches, the peaceful marches and how they confronted a militarized police force, rubber bullets and tear gas, images of police aggressively accosting protesters. But on January 6th, I saw some police taking selfies and even one officer helping a woman in a camel-haired coat wearing a red, white, and blue palm beanie hat with Trump emblazoned on the front. He helped her as she walked down the steps of the Capitol. She was a part of uh, the group who stormed the building and now she was among those who simply walked out. In many ways, the insurrection we witnessed on January 6th was the logical extension of the conservative counter to the black freedom movement of the mid 20th century, the logical extension of the movement that Dr. King sacrificed his life for. For well over 40 years, we have been living in that reaction as some railed against big government and so-called entitlement programs and others built the carceral state that has resulted in the incarceration of millions of Americans, mostly black and brown. Over these 40 years, we have witnessed the evisceration of any idea of the public of public life as, as a rugged form of competition and individualism has defined our way of living together. We've left behind a robust conception of citizenship for the idea that we are all self-interested persons in pursuit of our own aims and ends in competition and rivalry with others. No wonder we can't respond nationally to the devastation of COVID-19. In this context, communal life has given way to gated communities and communities of hyper-concentrated poverty. We've witnessed the flatlining of wages of ordinary workers, the skyrocketing of student loan debt, increasing precarity of working people as the rich has continued to extract resources for themselves and the rest have struggled to keep their noses above water. This was the reaction to the demand for a more racially just America, the dismantling of the great society and a wholesale attack on the very framework of the New Deal. Our politics has been overdetermined by the terrors and panic of the so-called forgotten American. And what we saw on the steps of the Capitol were those forgotten Americans, mostly white men and women, in full revolt in the face of the prospect that their world is dying. On April 3rd, 1968, on the eve of his assassination, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave voice to what he knew was ahead of us on this stormy night when he did not want to get out of, out of the bed in his motel room where a feeling in his gut told him that his days were numbered, King made his way to the pulpit in Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. He found the words to inspire and to warn. He spoke of the power of the historical moment and what it meant for these ordinary people to be called to risk everything on this day in 1968. And he reminded the crowd of the ongoing failure of the country to make real its promise of the country's ongoing betrayal. It was, we must remember, he was there organizing with garbage workers. King understood the glaring contradiction of being poor in the richest country in the history of the world. Quote, it's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder in all of its symbolism, he said. But ultimately, people want some suits and dresses and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey, but God has commanded us to be concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three square meals a day. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, but, but one day God's preacher must talk about the new New York, the new Atlanta the new Philadelphia, the new Los Angeles, the new Memphis, Tennessee. This is what we have to do, end quote. Here, Dr. King turned the attention of the audience 
to the material conditions that characterize their way of life. Too many languished in poverty. Too many struggled to imagine a tomorrow. And then this famed preacher, the man we celebrate today, offered the words that mean so much to me and so much to us that we quote them regularly. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't really matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. All too often on this day, in these celebrations, we rush to celebrate the life of Dr. King's dream. And like so many in the Christian tradition, for example, folk run past the darkness of Saturday in order to bask in the light of Resurrection Sunday. We are quick to talk about Dr. King's vision of the promised land, but we forget what he said, that we've got some difficult days ahead. Since his death in 1968, America has turned its back on what Dr. King died for. America has betrayed his sacrifice. And just a few days ago, we we all saw thousands willing to sack the Capitol in the name of a world that Dr. King sought to destroy. Now, national anniversaries of death can be a tricky lot to be used by whomever lays claim to the silent body buried in the ground that cannot speak back. Time can make matters worse. The farther we get away from the actual life lived, the more enchanted we are by the fables and myths that secure our illusions and deepen our fantasies. Dr. King has become larger than life. He has become a saint in the pantheon of America's civil religion. But Dr. King has been dead over 50 years now. And over this half century or so, his bones have been picked clean. Conservatives invoke his name in defense of their vision of a colorblind society in order to justify the status quo. Liberals use him to authenticate their own milquetoast politics as they tinker around the edges but leave the status quo in place. And many Black politicians yoke his legacy to their own selfish ambitions, pimping Dr. King in the name of their own pursuits. In so many ways, King's life has been reduced to a four-word sentence, I have a dream, and his politics to a basic affirmation of American ideals. He is the lead character in a story the nation tells itself about the quote-unquote movement, which, we, which begins with the landmark Supreme Court decision of 1954, the heroic refusal of Rosa Parks, the challenge of student sit-ins, and, and culminates with the 1963 March on Washington or the 1965 Selma March. Ours is a neat story with Southern villains and heightened drama and tragic deaths and heroic triumph. But that story never mentions Dr. King's depression. That story rarely reckons with what he said to his friend, Reverend D.E. King, quote, I found out that all that I've been doing in trying to correct this system in America has been in vain. The whole, the whole thing will have to be done away with, end quote. Ours is a story that secures the inherent goodness of this country and enlists Dr. King's life in fortifying that illusion. But a genuine reckoning with the man murdered on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel reveals a different story. In 1967 at Stanford University, just a year before Dr. King was murdered, he described why the days ahead would be so difficult. Quote, we must see that the struggles of today are difficult because we are struggling now for genuine equality. Negroes generally live in worse slums today than 20 or 25 years ago. In the North, schools are more segregated today than they were in 1954. 
The unemployment rate among whites at one time was about the same as the unemployment rate among Negroes. But today, the unemployment rate among Negroes is twice that of whites. And the average income of the Negro today is 50% less than whites. As we look at the problems, we see them growing and developing every day, King said. This could be a description of our own time. But we typically don't associate Dr. King with this kind of biting criticism. We keep him on this day stuck in 1963, dreaming a dream that allows us to pat ourselves on the back. In his last book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, Dr. King argued, among other things, that white supremacy stood in the way of democracy in this country, that it was an ever-present force to America, ever-present force in America, frustrating the dreams of the nation's darker citizens and undermining any pretense to racial justice. He wrote in the book, quote, Negroes have proceeded from a premise that equally means what it says, and, and uh, that equality means what it says. And they have taken white Americans at their word when they talk of equality as an objective. But most whites in America, King said, proceed from a premise that equality is a loose expression for improvement. White America is not even psychologically organized to close the gap, King said. Essentially, it seeks only to make it less painful and less obvious, but in most respects to retain it. Hmm. But in most respects to retain it. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this passage. King's formulation hinges on a devastating judgment about our so-called national commitment to racial justice. He claimed that the country viewed racial equality he, the country viewed racial equality as a loose expression for improvement. As a loose expression for improvement. When thought of in this way, racial justice gets reduced, gets reduced to a charitable enterprise, a philanthropic practice by, white, by which white people do good for black people. We become objects of charity. Equality is seen as the possession of white folks to give to others. Now, obviously, this is not equality. Now, King did not draw this conclusion from some abstract set of ideological principles. This was a lesson learned from, from experience, uh, the brutality of the South and the moral hypocrisy of the country generally led him to conclude that the belief that white people were superior to others and that equality was something to be given by them, that it distorted the principles of democracy and disfigured the moral character of those who believed the lie. <laughs> of those who believed the lie. Lord have mercy. For Dr. King, this was the underlying problem you see, the underlying problem that haunted the nation. White racism deformed and distorted the characters of those who embraced it, blocking the way for the development of the kinds of people democracy required. In defense of this idea of whiteness, we would be willing to throw democracy away. What did we see on January 6th? But an enactment of that very formulation. As early as 1957, Dr. King understood that the challenges of a dawning age required recognition of a shrinking world, that globalization had produced what he called a geographical togetherness, and that this togetherness very much needed a spiritual grounding where our moral and spiritual genius would make possible what he called a beloved community. King insisted that this new age required of us a commitment to excellence and understanding and goodwill that the virtues of love, mercy, and forgiveness ought to stand at the center of our lives. A world so fallen by the tragic choices of finite creatures like ourselves called for reconciliation, King argued, but it also was in need of redemption such that a beloved community could come into being. 
King understood that in a moment of challenge and crisis, in those darkest of hours, the dawning of a new age is only made possible by those who would dare to imagine that new age. Imaginings that would broaden our horizons and enlarge our experience and enable us to leave older selves behind. At the midnight hour, the darkest hour of the day, is the dawning of a new age, but you have to dare to imagine stepping into that new age as a different kind of human being. You can't just simply wait on something to happen. Those, it's not, it's not, it's not in the hands of those who, who rest on a, a blessed assurance or those who would assume that everything will be taken care of in the end. King understood that any new age obliged us to work. As he said in 1957, quote, I've talked about the new age, which is fastly coming into being. I've talked about the fact that God is working in history to bring about this new age. There is the danger, therefore, that after hearing all of this, you will go away with the impression that we can go home and sit down and do nothing, waiting for the coming of the inevitable. You will somehow feel that this new age will roll in on the wheels of inevitability, so there's nothing to do but wait on it. But, but if you get that impression, you are the victims of an illusion wrapped in superficiality, he said. We must speed up the coming of the inevitable. Imagining a better world, then, is not a passive act. It is a readying of the self to engage courageously and intelligently to act prophetically for transformative change. Such readying and intending involves practices that shape our dispositions toward others, a caring of the soul that opens us up to the wounds and joys of others, forging habits that enable us to be suspicious of actions that deny the dignity of our fellows, and a willingness to be still as a pathway to address the white noise of our current living. I'm reminded of a conversation I had once with the great Bob Moses. He talked about an ethic of caring within the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that each member had decided to hold him or herself accountable to the responsibility of tending to people who were inevitable, who were invisible to the larger society, of tending in such a way that they, poor black sharecroppers, could become who they were capable of being. What we saw on January 6th was the dying of an old world. And our task, as King called us to, is to somehow bring about a new way of being in that world, of being in the world. Now, the relative success of the movement, the eventual passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 accentuated for Dr. King as he grew older, quote, what, we, what needed to be done before the poor, the powerless, and the racially disadvantage could begin to achieve equality. As Dr. King looked out, he saw, despite the accomplishments of the movement, a country still at war with its ideals. A country still at war with its ideals. Watts had exploded in 1965, and urban uprisings consumed the nation for the next three years. The Vietnam War divided America, and King's own opposition to the war shattered traditional civil rights coalitions. King was increasingly aware of the fact that America was on the verge of destruction and felt more strongly than ever a prophetic duty to warn America against its hubris. By late 1965, however, Americans were not so willing to listen to King's social prophecy. For many, he had become persona non grata. The price of change up to this moment had been cheap, King warned, for it cost very little and required no redistribution of wealth to desegregate the South. The sickness of the nation's soul, he maintained, required much more. It necessitated structural change. 
King continued to believe that the spirit of democracy would overcome the evil of racism and economic exploitation, but a genuine transformation had to occur. America had to be born again. Or the demon, the serpent of racism would continue to threaten to swallow the experiment whole. As he wrote in Where Do We Go From Here? Quote, we must honestly admit that capitalism has often left a gulf between superfluous wealth and abject poverty, has created conditions permitting necessities to be taken from the many to give luxuries to the few, and has encouraged small-hearted men to become cold and conscienceless so that, like Dives before Lazarus, they are unmoved by suffering, poverty-stricken humanity. End quote. King recognized those forces that sought to deny effective freedom to the vast majority of the world. As such, he called for a fundamental reordering of our values and a refashioning of the selves who would leave, who would live them. <laughs> we saw a wholesale revolt, rebellion against this vision of, of the United States of America just the other day. In his last sermon, on March 31st, 1968, I hope you're being patient with me. I know I'm trying to walk through something. Just walk with me. I'm getting there. In his last sermon on March 31st, 1968, at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., Dr. King took as his text a passage from the book of Revelation. Quote, behold, I make all things new. Former things are passed away. As he stood on death's doorstep, his imagination worked to see beyond the moment. King understood that some of us were sleepwalking. And he offered a lesson in, quote, remaining awake through a great revolution. Much work needed to be done. Racism, poverty, militarism threatened the soul of America, he argued. And King's prophetic voice called us to attention, and he offered, a vo offered us through his words and deeds an opportunity to imagine ourselves as a more just and loving society. King's words and his witness urged us to see ourselves, right, as both, as David Bromwich argues, as both doer and object. He wanted us to see us as key figures within the beloved community, and to use Baldwin's language, Dr. King wanted us to create a self without the need for enemies. <laughs> King exemplified this effort in his claim for the beloved community, in his sacrifice. He wanted us to see that democracy is a way of life based on a working faith in the possibilities that we can, in fact, be better. And here we are, a nation in crisis, with a mob storming the Capitol in 2021 in the name of a white world that is dying. And you and I, most of us, still haven't become the kinds of people that democracies require. A quick glance around the country reveals that the nation stands on the edge of the abyss. Oh, we got some difficult days ahead. The election in November didn't settle anything, and in many ways it revealed to the world who we really are. The divisions within the country, white, black, rural, urban, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat, are all in view. And it feels as if the institutions and norms of our democracy are collapsing right in front of us, as if the country is unraveling at the seams. COVID-19 rages and ravages across the, across the nation. Americans are dying alone, and those who love them must grieve with the regret of not being able to say goodbye properly. I just literally left the funeral online of a close friend who died of COVID-19. The economy is in tatters. 
Millions are unemployed and hunger grips the nation, but the top 1% thrives. Greed and selfishness threaten to consume the nation. People are getting richer as death travels from door to door. And then you combine all of that with the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Hmm. The DA didn't even feel it worthy of, of, of charging the officer with reckless endangerment. The officer shot him in the back seven times with three, with three babies in the back of the car. The police killing of Trayford Pillarin in Lafayette, Louisiana, the public murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, the death of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, the death of Rashard Brooks in Atlanta, of Ahmaud Arbery, of, of Walter Wallace, of Casey Goodson, of Adrian Hill. I could go on and on and on. We face a moral reckoning in this country, a fundamental challenge to what we mean by we the people. We have to be honest with ourselves. We can no longer afford to tell ourselves this story of American virtue that secures our innocence and enlists Dr. King's life in justifying the lie. James Baldwin insisted as much. As he put it in the fire next time, it is not permissible that the authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence that constitutes the crime. Baldwin relentlessly exposed the lies that America tells itself. He wanted us to engage in the kind of self-examination, as King did, that requires us, that requires a fuller understanding of ourselves. In an essay he published in 1964, in a book he published with, with Richard Avenden entitled Nothing Personal, Baldwin put the point succinctly, quote, we are afraid to reveal ourselves because we trust ourselves so little. And in this labyrinth, the person is desperately trying not to find out what he really thinks. Therefore, the truth cannot be told even about one's attitudes. We live by lies, Baldwin writes. And not only, for example, about race, but also about our very natures. The lie has penetrated our most private moments and the most secret chambers of our the most secret chambers of our heart. Right? This country has never been a beacon of virtue. It is not an example of democracy achieved, nor is it the shining city on the hill. We tell ourselves this lie in order to protect ourselves from what we have done and the monsters that we happen to be today. Baldwin understood that our problems in the United States go beyond who occupies the White House or the latest example of American racism. We have to get to the heart of the matter. We have to look the rot of the country squarely in the face. And this requires of us, I believe, that we deconstruct all that the nation holds sacred, tell the truth so that we might release ourselves into a different way of being in the world. Now, at the time of his death, I'm coming, I'm trying to bring it home. I'm trying to bring it home. You know I'm lying, I'm a preacher. <laughs> or I'm a pretending to be one, at least. At the time of his death, Dr. King understood that if we're going to achieve our country, we, we will have to shatter the fables and myths that protect our national innocence that we have to confront the lies that give comfort to the status quo. We have to leave behind this unflinching, right? This adolescent desire to be innocent. It's almost to be condemned, right? To never, never land. Can you imagine being perpetually lost boys and lost girls? We don't wanna be held accountable. We don't wanna be responsible to anyone. That kind of immaturity, Baldwin insisted, makes us monstrous. We have to look in the mirror and finally see who and what is looking back at us. The flat, the last four years, hell, the last few days, have ripped off the mask of this nation's racial politics. All of the racial dog whistles and coded speech that have been a part of America's politics have been tossed away for an explicit appeal 
to white grievance and white resentment and white hatreds. The genie is finally out of the bottle. Our task is not to push it back into the bottle, but to imagine a country without it. Are we willing to imagine America as a truly multiracial democracy, or are we willing to toss this fragile experiment in democracy into the trash bin? Because we refuse to give up the idea that white people ought to be valued more than others. Oh, the Melville quote comes back to us. But not yet have we solved the incantation of this whiteness and learned why it appeals with such power to the soul. Oh, we got some difficult days ahead. The celebration of Dr. King in this moment of storm and stress occasions an extraordinary opportunity for us. We can confront the lie in the grave, not for who we want Dr. King to be, the life in the grave, I'm sorry, not for who we want Dr. King to be, but for who he actually is, faults and all. And with him, imagine a new life for the nation. Here, the beloved community can take shape. In our intimate relationships with each other, we can break down barriers that blind us to the humanity of those with whom we live. We can cast away the false idols of racism and treasure the beauty of human beings and all of their difference. We can usher in a new moral and social contract with each other where you are guaranteed healthcare as a right, guaranteed a basic quality of life with a roof over your head and a living wage and where you can live safely and secure. How Dr. King imagined civic life, how he imagined leadership, how he insisted on the value of the beloved community, shorn of sentimentality and rooted in a just order, his unshakable willingness to speak truth to power, no matter the consequences, these values on this day ought to shape our embrace of him, not the image of the happy nonviolent saint who sanctifies our national innocence and allows you to feel good about yourself. King's holidays should serve then as a national commemoration of the tragedy of our racial past. His dream calls attention to the enduring power of our principles and reveals his abiding faith in our nation's capacity to live up to those principles. But we got to do some work to bring it into existence. Because Dr. King understood that there was a not so hidden defect in the nation's body, a congenital, what he called the congenital deformity that crippled the nation. His dream unmasked America's original sin and we must no longer evade how that sin has shaped and colored our way of life. We see it in full view in this country today and we must finally show some contrition, acknowledge what we have done and release ourselves into a new future where we can be together differently. We stand at a crossroad, at a crossroad. An old world is dying and a new world is desperately trying to be born. You know it. You can feel it. I know I can. Something has died in America. But the ghost will not leave us alone. True freedom for all Americans requires that we confront the ghost directly, tell a different story about how we've arrived right here, right now, demand that the ghost go on now and rest. We got this. All of which requires that we work even harder for a better world, that we put aside the old fears and the histories that justify them in order to finally bury that old Negro and the white people who so desperately need him. Our celebration of Dr. King must in the end remind us of the fragility of our democracy. I know the last few days should have. American democracy is not guaranteed. It's an ideal towards which we strive and perhaps will never achieve. What better way to celebrate King's witness in this time of storm and stress? What better way to live Baldwin's insistence that we confront the monster in the mirror than to remember that hubris darkens the soul and blinds us to the world at need, to a world in need. If this celebration doesn't remind us today of why those white men and women sacked the Capitol, 
if it doesn't show us how the belief that white people matter more than others distorts our character, if this celebration doesn't orient us to the work, to work harder for democracy amid crippling greed, unimaginable arrogance and selfishness, and to fight with every fiber of our being against the horrors of democracy, that I'm reminded of the words of the prophet Amos. I hate and I despise your rituals, your feasts, and I will not take, I will take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Yea, though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meal offerings, I will not accept them, but let justice well up as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Celebrate Dr. King's life and sacrifice. Understand the despair and the depression that gripped him in his last days. Wrap your mind around the country's betrayal, and that will help you understand what happened on January 6th. The nation turned its back on Dr. King, put him in the grave, and we've been picking his bones ever since. On this day, let's lift up his life and declare ourselves soldiers for a new America and begin again and begin again and begin again. Thank you so much. Have a good one and be safe. Thank you so much, Professor Gloud. I mean, that was an incredible talk where it's just a privilege to have you here and learn from you. And um, I wanna keep the energy going that you brought um, in the questions that people have. Um, but I just do wanna remind people that if they haven't read Democracy in Black yet or Begin Again, I did post the links to pick up the books from the local bookstore, the Ivy Bookshop. And I also posted how you can check them out from the Pratt Library. Um, yeah, lots of people posting. If, if you're not <laughs> able to see that, yeah, just really incredible and absolutely um, moving. So I'm gonna scroll back up to questions that we have um, so we can get to as many as possible. Um, and a lot of them really tie in well to begin again. And of course, like everything you were talking to us about today. Um, so one of the first questions we have um, from one of my, oh, from one of my colleagues, actually, hello, Carlotta. Um, do you think this country can heal from the recent racial and civil unrest? Um, I have to believe we can, um, but we have to be truthful about what is the, what's at the heart of the unrest. Um, we tend to exceptionalize Donald Trump, right? We believe that if we could only get rid of him, that we will be better. Well, I mean, I think that's true to a certain degree, but, oh, our problems cut so much deeper. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump is kind of uh, the tip of the, the he's just uh, the boil. There's something much sicker at the heart. So genuine racial healing will require of us to echo Baldwin that we tell the truth about who we are, what we've done. And we've been unwilling to do that. So we find ourselves on this kind of racial hamster wheel where every other generation has to grapple with this. So we can heal if we, if we finally grow up and hold ourselves to account, but who knows? Absolutely. Um, and we have another question from a viewer, um, and they open it with powerful presentation. The Biden-Harris administration was elected on a platform that includes racial justice, police reform, inclusion, and embracing America's diversity. What are some of the critical actions that the Biden-Harris administration must take to address um, the Trumpism, they say, um, the racial hatred, the attacks on our democracy, voter suppression, all of those things. So let me just say this to my mind, you know, politicians are what they are <laughs> and they inevitably disappoint. We don't want to trade one fantasy that was Trump for another fantasy that is the Biden-Harris administration. We want to continue to push them because we can't, the scale of the problems we face as a country uh, require to my mind, requires a response at scale. We can't tinker around the edges. 
American democracy, I think, stands on a nice edge. And, and we must be aggressive in addressing the structural realities that, that, has, that have brought us here. That said, I think they could do a couple of things at, you know, within the first 100 days. One, I think they need to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Two, I think they need to pass the George Floyd Criminal Justice Act. And three, and this is in no order, they need to prosecute. They need to prosecute all of those folks who sacked the Capitol and then, and then um, um, direct the Department of Justice, right? Merrick Garland, once he's uh, uh, confirmed, to not only engage in a more extensive study of the scope and extent of white supremacy's penetration of law enforcement throughout the country, but then to execute right, a strategy to purge law enforcement and the military of these elements. Alongside that, I also believe that Congress needs to begin to hold hearings around white supremacy. We need on white supremacist groups. We need to make transparent how these organizations function in our society. Of course, we're going to have to navigate uh, that delicate balance between our commitment to the First Amendment and right, uh, sussing out these organizations. But we have to be explicit. We cannot allow white supremacy to, 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 to continue, white supremacists to continue to animate our body politic. We're going to have to address it explicitly and to remove it, to extract it as best we can. Otherwise, the cancer will continue to metastasize. Those are the three immediate things that I think they can do, four immediate things I think they can do. Yeah, thank you. And you also mentioned um, in Begin Again, so I was hoping you could also expand a little bit um, on it for our audience, um, the passing of H.R. 40, um, National Civics Week about telling our story. Um, so could you talk a little bit about those elements as well? Yeah, you know, I, 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 I'm trying to think out loud or gesture in that moment in Begin Again. So what does it mean? What might it mean and what might it involve to begin to tell ourselves a different story? Not so much a story about how Black people have been injured or the ways in which white people are oppressors, but rather to really kind of bring into view the, the complexity, the darkness, as well as the brilliance of American history. And so part of what that will involve is telling the truth that in some ways is, you know, it's not in some ways that this is a settler colonial country. You know, what has happened to the native peoples? How has slavery shaped, right, our conception of citizenship, our understanding of, of the public good, its limits and constraints? What has Jim Crow done, right? And so part, in order to get to this, you know, I'm echoing Brian Stevenson here, you know, truth and reconciliation, as Stevenson says, is sequential. You just can't jump to reconciliation. You got to first tell the truth. Once you tell the truth, then that becomes the precondition for reconciliation, which sets the stage for substantive repair. So part of what, uh, you know, H.R. 40 and, of course, uh, the legislation that Congresswoman Barbara Lee has put forward is all about setting the conditions for us to tell a story about who we are that can then open up a different kind of imagining of, 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 of how we uh, live together. Um, and we're beginning to see that in the built environment with the museum down in Montgomery, uh, with what libraries like your own are doing um, and the like, but it's gonna take, it's gonna take a while. So that's, that's what I was reaching for there. Yeah, absolutely, thank you. And I know we only have 10 minutes, so I'm trying to Combined. I talked too long. I'm sorry. No, I it too was long. amazing. And on that note, um, a lot of people have asked where they can find the talk again. I just want to remind everyone that we're also streaming to the Pratt Library and Lewis Museum's Facebook Live. So you can go ahead and watch again um, and share as well. Um, and one of the other questions we have. Um, and this, a lot of these questions are digging into um, ideas in Begin Again. Um, That's great. I love this. Great. I love it. Um, so 
One of our participants says, what actions constitute engagement with democracy in the way that Martin Luther King and Baldwin required of us as American citizens? And they also say, what actions can we take to improve our democracy? You know, let me, let me just say this. I want to be very, very clear um, here that, you know, I'm a writer that, that, that tries um, as best as I can um, uh, to, to offer a description of our world, of our, of our country, the state of our moment, uh, that can orient us all to imagining a different America. But I don't want to presume that I have all the answers, because I don't. I'm struggling, and I'm struggling with this just as you are. Um, I think we need, you know, poets in the Emersonian sense, people who offer descriptions that will lead us to ask different sorts of questions. Um, and, and I try to do that in my own work. So I say that to say that I, I don't want to presume that I have all the answers. Um, I do know that one concrete thing that we could do um, is you know, to make uh, uh, you know, voting in the presidential election, voting a national holiday. What we saw, you, this, seemed, this sounds so small and minuscule, but what we saw of what we've seen since 2008 is a wholesale attack on the franchise, which has everything to do with uh, the demographic shifts that we face in the country, changing the balance of power. And those demographic shifts have generated a kind of anxiety and, and panic and terror on the part of some of our white fellows. And what we saw in Georgia uh, is one concrete example of the effects of those demographic shifts, right? The state that produced Newt Gingrich's contract with America, the state that produced that horrifying uh, photographic image of Bill Clinton and Sam Nunn standing in front of Stone Mountain with black prisoners behind them as Bill Clinton engaged in triangulation. What did we see? We saw black folk in rural uh, Georgia. We saw organizations API community, Latinx community. We saw, you know, New Georgia vote. We saw Black Voters Matter. We saw grassroots organizations, right, leading everyday ordinary people, a cross-section, a broad coalition of the America that is coming into being, kind of taking control of their lives, right? I don't want to get caught up in Ossoff and Warnock, but remember, politicians inevitably disappoint. So I think one of the things that we can do is to begin to finally break the back of this effort to limit the franchise, right? By trying desperately to expand this reach, to get more and more uh, Americans involved. Even in this election, when the largest number of Americans who have ever voted in a presidential election for Joe Biden and for Donald Trump, we still had a large number of Americans who didn't vote. And I think if we can begin to expand the electorate we can begin that work. So that's the first thing I would do. The second thing I think we need to do is to establish a, a new moral and social contract. I'll be quicker. I'm, I'm taking too long, right? That new moral and social contract involves what I just said, right? Guaranteeing healthcare uh, for, every human, for every human being in this country, right? That you don't have to go broke because you're sick. Guaranteeing a basic quality of life that everyone in the richest country in the history of the world should have a roof over their heads and, and be able to make a living wage so they can put food on the table. And then, of course, thinking about, you know, safety and security as opposed to law and order. What does it mean to live a secure life, right? That takes us beyond just simply carcerality, takes us to the heart of our relationship with each other and our expectations for each other. I think if we can begin to enact a, so, a set of policies that reflect that contract, we can do the hard work of imagining America over and over again, or imagining America anew. How about that? That's better. Yeah, I mean, that's so important. And I also think about when, um, in Begin Again, when you were writing about like the idea of doing your first work works over and how white America is not necessarily doing that because we're not confronting our history. Yeah, you know, Sister Tracy, that's such an important moment. Baldwin reaches for, you know, that, that formulation in Revelations, right, for a reason, you know. You think about it personally. If I'm going to be a better father, 
I had to, I had to, if I was going to be a better father, I would, I had to deal with my own demons, right? I had to deal with the fact that I'm, I'm this vulnerable little boy who's still scared of his father, right? And if I don't go back and understand what happened, if I don't go back and, and realize the choices that sent me down this path as opposed to the other, I'm going to repeat it. I'm going to repeat it over and over and over again. And I'm going to, in, in, in effect, bequeath it to my children or to my one son, right? Uh, I only have one child. So Baldwin takes that personal kind of approach and said, look, I mean, look, we got to go back to the beginning and look at the choices made. Right? You can't undo them, but you can understand them. Right. But, you know, America is so intent on protecting its innocence. On believing that it is the shining city on the hill, that it doesn't want to look the ugliness of its of its past in the face. So we're a prospective country. We're always future oriented. That's the heart of American perfectionism. You know, it's an effective ideology that keeps our sins at bay. And it also forces the burden of those sins onto the shoulders of the people who have, who have to bear them. Mm. Yes. And so I think we have time for two more questions. Excellent. Yes. Lots of great questions and comments. Um, we did have a couple people. So I want to make sure I get to this. Um, Reth uh, mentioned that you're you're reminding them of Frederick Douglass in his 1852 speech. Um, so I'll take this attendee's question. Oh, and you look very excited excited to answer. So I will say it quickly. Um, when you speak of myth and the lie, you remind me of how Frederick Douglass in his 1852 speech, what to the slave is the 4th of July, confronted his white audience with the truth of America's betrayal of its ideals. As a country still at war with its ideals, how do we proceed? I think, you know, we have to press that question. Um, we need more poets to do so, but we have to press it in this moment. We have to force the nation to answer it. It's part of the organizing work that we have to do. Um, so I'm calling on all the poets to generate the language that will continue us, to, that will continue the work of forcing the country to answer it. Um, oftentimes we wanna move because we're so uncomfortable. We wanna move to resolution too quickly. We're gonna have to sit here for a while. We're gonna have to sit here for a while um, yeah, I'm, I'm still committed to the American project, but I don't quite know what that is yet. We have to define what it is in this new, in this new dispensation. Um, so we got a lot of work ahead of us. So yeah, we got to continue to press the question. So, but I love the idea of, of, of connecting what I'm saying and what I'm doing to what Douglas was up to in 1852. It gives us a sense of the long durée of America's unwillingness to grapple with its sins. Because we're in 2021. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Lord <have> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and lots of great questions. Um, so again, Professor Gloud, thank you for your time. Um, I am going to close us with um, a question from one of our friends about James Baldwin that I think does really tie everything together. Uh, so they say, what did Baldwin learn about the needs for American democracy from his experience in Europe? And I know begin again, you like really go into how, how, why all these different places like shaped him. You know, I think at the, um, at the heart of it is that Baldwin needed to acquire the requisite distance from America in order to think about it. You know, he's in France, he doesn't have the language until later. So he's silent. He's in Istanbul, he doesn't have the language. So he's silent. Um, and, and for the most part, outside of interpreters. And so He's using the distance where he doesn't have to navigate daily the cuts. You know, this, this racism stuff of America is exhausting, right? It's exhausting because we're constantly having to convince the country that what's happening to us is real. And the country doesn't want to believe it because if they believe it, then they have to concede 
something about themselves, about itself, that it doesn't want to concede. So Baldwin said he left the U United States in 1948 because either he was going to kill somebody or somebody was going to kill him. And he knew that rage was taking root in his spirit. So he needed the distance. Europe didn't teach him anything. It just gave, I mean, of course it did, but it gave him space to reflect on the America that was in his gut. You know, it's like that wonderful line in, no, in, no, in uh, Nobody Knows My Name in the introduction, where he says he thought he was running away from it, but he carried it over, carried with him, carried all of that gunk over overseas with him, and he had to work it out. You know, he had to work it out without, without, without uh, uh, having to navigate the daily nonsense of, of being in this place. But that's a wonderful question, though. I love it. Yeah, and that it, that's really a perfect way to end um, today. So again, thank you, Professor Gloud, for your time. Um, as a reminder, Begin Again and Democracy in Black are available from the Ivy Bookshop in the library. So get your copies if you haven't, because for everyone whose questions we couldn't get to, um, there's a lot of things, a lot of information that you can take with what is next? What is this third awakening in America? Um, so I'd also like to thank our friends at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum, um, and especially Terry and Jacqueline, um, the Baltimore Office of Promotion and the Arts. And of course, thank you all for joining us today. Um, and also thank you very much to our interpreter from the Hearing and Speech Agency. Yes. So... Thank you again, Professor Gloud, and I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of your weekend. And stay safe, everybody. Stay safe, please. Yes, stay safe and take care. Bye-bye. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.